Uh, we're in a series on the five solas of the faith of the Reformation, and, and we've uh, uh, discussed these the last uh, three weeks, and today is the uh, fourth uh, sola that we're going to look at, sola fide, which means by faith alone, faith alone. And uh, I want to open up by reading a portion of scripture out of Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3. And I just want to begin in verse 21. And I know that we've studied this as we've gone through Romans. And we have one more week uh, next week by the glory of God alone, for the glory of God alone. And then we'll get back into our study of Romans chapter 11. But today, follow along as I read a passage from Scripture out of Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law... And the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? He is not. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we will uphold the law. So we've been going through a study of these five solas. We looked the first week at sola scriptura, which means basically the Bible alone. We don't add anything to it. We don't take anything away. We don't add the traditions of our church and say, well, this is the way we do it here at Grace Bible Church or whatever. Uh, I know the Bible doesn't tell us to do that, but we just hold on to this tradition. Uh, No, we believe that we we gain truth from God's word and God's word alone. And that's very critical to understand that first solo today. It's kind of the foundation upon, I believe, which everything else is built. Somebody asked me last week um, in an interview, well, are you teaching these in a certain order? And I said, well, there's so much debate on, on what order to teach the five solas. No, I'm not. But I started with sola scriptura because of the simple fact that, you know what, if we don't have the Bible, we don't have anything, right? I mean, we don't have the truth that God has given to us. And so it's very important that we have a high view of scripture. So we want to read it. We want to understand it. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we teach the word of God on Sundays and on Tuesdays and with men and ladies and children. Because we believe in Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone. And then we look 
also at Solus Christus, Christ alone. And we saw the importance of he is the only means of our salvation. There's salvation found in no other name under heaven given among men. It's only in Christ that we are secured and forgiven of our sins because of his death on Calvary and our trust in that death that he paid for our sins, past, present, future. He's freed us from the power of sin. And one day, ultimately, glory to God, we'll be freed from the presence of sin. Can't wait. Well, last week we looked at the third one, sola gratia, which means basically grace alone. Grace alone. And we talked a little bit about how it's not by works, which we've done. We don't earn our salvation. We don't deserve our salvation. If, if grace is anything other than a free gift, something that God bestows upon us, it's not grace. You don't have to get cleaned up. Praise the Lord. He saves us in our sin, the Bible says, while we were dead in trespasses and sin. He cleansed us. He forgave us our sin. And sometimes as Christians, we lose sight of that. And we begin to think maybe a little higher than what we should about ourselves. When we see what's going on in the world and we look down our spiritual noses at those who don't know Christ. And we, oh, shame on them. How dare they act that way? They're not doing anything different than what we would do, beloved, if we didn't have Christ. And it's so important to understand that because it gives you compassion for them rather than judgment. And so we need to pray for this lost world. We need to pray for our lost neighbors, our lost family members. And we need to be patient with God as he works through us in their hearts. And hopefully we're giving them a picture of Christ that is appealing to them. Not a picture that would be kind of a turnoff. So we need to be representing Christ. We need to be representing grace. And today we want to look at sola fide, faith alone. Faith alone. I say faith alone for fourth because I think it's kind of the logical climax of where we're going. This is all for the glory of God. We're going to look at that next week. But when I said sola scriptura is the kind of the, the principle behind the Reformation, sola fide is really the, or the material principle. Sola fide is the formal principle. It's the fact that faith alone brings us to the dispute that caused this Reformation in the first place. The idea between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics. The Protestants were protesting what the Catholic Church was teaching. That somehow you could earn your salvation. You could earn favor with God by giving money and by crawling on your knees and doing all sorts of things to your body. Somehow they thought that that earned them God's grace. That's why the Catholic Church has sacraments, because those sacraments are a means to God's grace. As a Protestant church, we don't have sacraments. We have ordinances. We have two, baptism, right? And so it's, it's important that we, we understand when we, we go through the ordinance of baptism and we practice the other ordinance, which is communion, the Lord's table. These, these aren't means 
to God's grace. These are just an expression of the grace that God has already bestowed upon our hearts. When you desire to get baptized, you don't get the teaching of the Bible. It's not that, okay, if you're not baptized, you're not saved. That's not what the Bible teaches. If that were the case, the thief on the cross would have a problem. Last time I checked, he wasn't baptized. And yet the Lord said, hey, today you'll be with me in paradise. Because he repented of his sin and he trusted in Christ and Christ alone. And so we don't look to baptism or we don't look to communion as a means of God's grace. But we look to those things as a celebration of our faith. We say that, you know what, we want to follow the Lord through the waters of baptism for the sole purpose of, you know what, that's what he commanded us to do. And it's an expression of our faith in Christ that when you go into these waters and you're laid back in the water, it's a picture of being buried with Christ in his death and then being gloriously raised to newness of life. That doesn't save you. That's just a picture of what happened to you. And the same thing on communion Sundays when we have communion, this bread and and this grape juice that we drink. It doesn't magically turn into the the body and the blood of Christ. We don't do hocus pocus here. It's not that kind of a thing. It's just an emblem. It's a symbol of what Christ's death means to us. And so when we come to faith alone, that's really the key point of disagreement that they had between the Protestants and the early Roman Catholic Church. Luther called it the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. Sola fide. It's also the doctrine by which we stand or fall. I don't believe that as a believer you can say, well, I don't agree with that. I don't believe it's just faith alone. I think that you would have to examine your faith. John Blanchard said this. He says, grace is not a reward for faith. Faith is the result of grace. See, we don't have our faith in and of ourselves. Our faith is a gift from God and it comes through his grace. B.B. Warfield said justification is through faith, not on account of faith. A.W. Pink said, saving faith is not a native product of the human heart, but it is a spiritual grace communicated from on high. In other words, we don't just kind of conjure up some kind of faith. B.B. Warfield also said, it is not faith that saves, but faith in Jesus Christ. It is not strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively Not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or in the nature of faith, but in the object of our faith. Powerful. J.I. Packer says a church that lapses from justification by faith can scarcely be called Christian at all. Those are powerful quotes. When you look back a couple pages in Romans to Romans chapter 1 verse 17, it says... Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Then he says, Paul says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Look at what it says, from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
It means that the whole Christian life, beloved, is a life of faith. From the time you enter into the relationship with Jesus Christ and every step along the way, it's a step, it's a life of faith, step by step. When Martin Luther had an experience that was rather cage-rattling, he almost struck by lightning and thought, wow, he's going to die, and cried out to a saint to save him. And through that whole process, he came to know Christ eventually. And while he was teaching through Romans, he finally, he came to this verse and he realized that what he was seeking, righteousness, and that's what he was seeking through the Catholic Church, through all the things that they had him doing, committed himself, he was a, a monk, he was a priest, and all these things. It could never come from an outward act or an inward discipline of the soul. He realized that, you know what? I'm seeking something that I I can't even obtain in and of myself. And so he cried out to God that God would supply him that faith. And that's upon which our salvation is founded. Faith in faith alone. As a matter of fact, when he was translating Romans, he created quite a controversy as he was going through that because in Romans 3.28, he actually added the word alone in faith alone. Where it says, for one is justified by faith apart from works. He said, is justified by faith alone apart from works. And the Catholic Church came unglued. They said, that's not there. In the original. How dare you put that in there? But he replied that it's necessary so that we can understand the sense of the passage. And so Romans 3.28 indeed does teach by faith alone, sola fide. But when we talk about faith, I was doing some studying this past week and I noticed that John MacArthur had a couple lists that I want to share with you this morning. These aren't in your notes. They'll be up on the screen. And the first one is things that neither prove nor disprove our faith. Because we're always concerned about our faith or the faith of someone else. And sometimes we look at certain things as indicators. Oh, that person's got great faith. So he gives a list. First of all, we want to look at things that neither prove nor disprove true faith. First of all, Visible morality. (laughs) Visible morality. I mean, do you understand that you can be visibly, outwardly moral and still not be saved? Still not be transformed by the grace of God? I mean, there's a lot of pagans, there's a lot of cultists that put Christians to shame with the life that they live. As far as morality goes. Remember when in Matthew 19, when this young man came to Jesus and he asked Jesus, he said, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? What was he asking? How do I get to heaven? That's what he was asking. That's the question everybody has today. Well, Jesus told him in that text, you can look it up, to keep the commandments and then proceeded to list some of the major ones. 
And the man responded with this. Well, I've done all that. (laughs) I've kept all that. Hey, give me something new, Jesus. Come on. Jesus did not challenge this man's sincerity. He didn't say, yeah, you're a liar. He didn't say any of that. But he did respond to him. According to the outward appearance of this man, his own human perception of his obedience, he was probably speaking the truth. He probably did seem in his own mind to keep these things that Jesus listed off. But when Jesus told him to sell all his possessions and give possessions and give the proceeds to the poor, then you can come and follow me. The Bible says that the man went away what? Grieved, sad. For he was one who owned much property. See, when you stop and you think about that, his refusal to obey Christ was a demonstration that his outward obedience to the law was not done out of love for God. It wasn't done for the purpose of God's glory. But really, it was done out of self-love. He wanted people to look at him good. So he thought, well, I'm going to keep all my moral ducks in a row. So people can look at me and say, what a wonderful man that is. It was for the purpose of his own self-interest, you might say. And when he was commanded to give everything that he owned, and then he could follow Christ, he refused. He refused. And by that refusal, even his good works, beloved, exposed the spiritual worthlessness of his life. See, just because you come here on a Sunday morning, just because you do your devotions every week, just because you go through your little checklist of spiritual activities that you have in your life, that doesn't make you a believer. Now, that may be evidence that you are a believer. All those things are good things. But if you're doing them out of selfish motivation, God in the Bible says, you know what? They're just like worthless rags. Secondly, we see here not only visible morality, but he goes on, he says, intellectual knowledge of God's truth is not necessarily a proof of saving faith. What do I mean by that? It's possible, beloved, for someone to have a great deal of knowledge about God's word and yet be unsaved. I went to college with several people who just had an uncanny knack for memorizing books of the Bible. And they could, you know, you could ask them about a theological question and they'd just right off the tip of their tongue, man, oh, you got to go here, And then you you do a little research and you find out where they at today. And they're not living for God. But they had all that knowledge. Intellectual knowledge of God's truth is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But it's not necessarily proof of saving faith. Remember, the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day took a lot of time studying Scripture. (laughs) But they didn't believe and obey the truths that they were studying. And what happened? Those, those truths 
that they studied actually became a judgment against them in the long run. Paul, to his self-confident brothers in the flesh, he says, you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, but through your breaking the law do you dishonor God. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. So you have these religious people that were claiming to know God, and yet they're not obeying. They knew about it, but they didn't obey it. Thirdly, he says religious involvement is not necessarily a proof of saving faith. Look throughout the Old Testament with Israel, and you can see that, you know what? God continually condemned the Israelites toward all their observance of the Mosaic ordinances, all the ceremonies that they kept, and yet they had no trust in God. (laughs) They went through all this religious activity, but it was all for naught. Fourthly, you can even say this, active ministry in Christ's name is no certain proof of saving faith. You have religious involvement, but you also have people that are involved in ministry. Active ministry in Christ's name is not proof that you're saved. There's no proof there of saving faith. Think about it. One of the disciples that was very much involved in ministry, very active with Jesus, was who? Judas. He served as a trusted treasurer. He was the one that held the money. (laughs) He considered himself a follower of Christ. But in Matthew 7, Jesus said this, and this is a haunting passage for all of us. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not in your name perform many miracles? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Active ministry is not a proof, certain proof of saving faith. Fifthly, he says, even conviction of sin does not necessarily demonstrate saving faith. I mean, there's a lot of people that are burdened by their knowledge of the sinful behavior in their lives. And a lot of time that sense of guilt becomes so overpowering that they literally become insane. He goes on, he says, six, assurance of salvation is not an infallible mark of saving faith. I thought this was kind of interesting. John MacArthur writes, he says, the world is filled with people who are sincerely convinced in their own minds that they are right with God and that their place in heaven is secured. If being persuaded that we are Christians makes us Christians indeed, we would heed no warnings about being deceived by false hopes. If it were not possible to believe oneself saved when he is not, Satan would have no way to deceive people about their salvation. And yet, Scripture is full of warnings to unsaved people who think they are saved. 
And then seventhly, he says, experience of a past decision for Christ doesn't necessarily prove that your faith is genuine. If you're holding on to something that happened 20 years ago, my question for you is, what has Jesus done for you lately? You know, big deal. You walk down an aisle, you raised a hand. But if there's no transformation in your life since that point, we got a problem. We need to talk. So all seven of those things are not necessarily proofs. They can be, but they're not necessarily proofs of a genuine faith. Well, what are some reliable proofs of, of saving faith? He gives another list. He says, first of all, evidence of saving faith is a love for God. A love for God. Romans chapter 8, it says, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. I mean, do you understand the unsaved person cannot love God and has no desire to love him? Can't. Secondly, he says, an evidence of saving faith is repentance from sin, a turning away from sin, a change of mind about your sin, and a hatred of it that always accompanies true contrition. It's basically the opposite of the first one there. A person who genuinely loves God will have a built-in hatred of sin. The Bible says it's impossible to love two things that are contrary to one another. Right? Matthew 6, no one can serve two, Matthew, or two, two masters, Jesus says in Matthew 6. He says, for either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll hold on to one and despise the other. When you say that you love the holy and righteous God, you have to have a, a deep hatred of sin. And true repentance, beloved, is always more than just simply saying you're sorry for something. I mean, think about it. Judas became sorry for his sin. He was so sorry, he killed himself. But you know what? He didn't repent. He didn't ask for Jesus' forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 Paul commanded the Corinthian believers, he commended them for being made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God. See, true repentance always involves godly sorrow. A third reliable evidence of true faith is genuine humility. You see that throughout Scripture. We studied that Thursday night as Emmanuel said, in our, men's, in our men's group. Genuine humility. Fourthly, he goes on and he says, true evidence, evidence of true faith is a devotion to God's glory. A devotion to God's glory. Philippians 1.20, Paul says, My earnest expectation and hope is that I shall not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness, Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He was always concerned about the glory of God. Prayer is a fifth reliable indication of true faith. Galatians 4, 6 says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. See, the heart of a genuine Christian cannot help but cry out to God for help. Now, we don't all pray as much as we should. 
but we know that we should be. We have a desire to. We always know that that area of our lives should be increasing. A sixth mark of saving faith is selfless love, not just for God, but also for concerning other people. 1 John 2, 9 to 10 says, The one who says that he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. 1 John 3, 14, We know that we passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. We've been studying 1 John on Wednesday nights. He also says in 1 John chapter 4, he says, Beloved, we know this song, right? Let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. For the one who does not love does not know God, for God is what? Love. Well, seventhly, seventh mark of saving faith, he says, is separation from the world. Remember, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world, right? Right? First um, John, once again, chapter 2, he says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from what? The world. Chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, he says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And that is the victory that has overcome the world. What? Our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So we're separated from the world, even though we're in the world, we're to overcome the world. Eighth is spiritual growth. When you stop and you look at the parable of the soils, you know, that's that's such a, a good picture of what happens when someone, when they come to Christ genuinely and there's actually fruit in their lives. Soil produces crops. It goes on. Also, one last one, he says, obedient living. Obedient living. 1 John chapter 2, By this we know that we have come to know him, know Christ, if we keep, what? His commandments. Now I say all that to say, say this. If you're sitting here this morning and maybe you've went through that list and you're like, wow, I've been trusting in a lot of these things that maybe I shouldn't have been. It comes right back to what we're going to look at this morning. Sola fide, by faith alone. All right? Are we justified before God? Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be justified? What is the meaning of justification? We've gone through this before because we've been in Romans. But the word justify means to declare what? Righteous. Right? To declare righteous. It comes from the idea of an early first century courtroom and as a trial judge drew the trial to a close the judge having heard all the evidence he would pronounce his victory or his uh, verdict concerning the matter and when he would justify a person it meant to declare them as if they were not guilty in the eyes of the law I mean, when I think of justified, here's what I think of. I think of justified margins. You know, like in a document. Like, 
I don't know what it is with me and justified margins, but like my sermon notes, they're justified. The margins, everything has to be like, hmm. I mean, when I see a page where it's all off the line, I just, I just, it just causes chaos in my mind. I don't know why. I just like things, you know, that way. Well, what does that mean? A justified margin is one that's what? It's absolutely straight from the top to the bottom on both sides. So the program arranges those words and spaces to make that so. Another thing, just for the sake of the conversation that drives me nuts, is when you have a hyphen at the end of a sentence on a justified margin. Oh, just sends me into vomit. I got to go back. I got to, you know, jump it down to the next paragraph. You know, even if the words are all spread, it doesn't matter. I just, hyphens on me don't, I just don't do well. I don't know what that has to do with what we're talking about, but I just thought I'd share my heart with you this morning, being a little transparent. So in the sense, justify means to make straight that which would be otherwise crooked. See, when you trust Jesus Christ as your savior, the Bible says that God declares you not guilty of the sin that you've committed. He declares you straight instead of, what? Crooked in his eyes. It's an act that God and God alone can perform. Just like those words on a page can't say, hey, I think I'm just going to justify myself. No. The program has to make those words do that. This justification is an act that's performed by God on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross. And it's received by us through this instrumentality of faith. Do you realize that nothing you do and nothing you could ever do contributes or would contribute to your own justification? It's entirely an act of God. On the sinner's behalf. The idea that the crooked is declared to be straight. And the guilty sinner is now declared righteous in God's eyes. I want to read something from Martin Luther. As he contemplated this. This doctrine. He says. I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle. To the Romans. And nothing stood in the way. But that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice, whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which 
Through grace and sincere mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on a new meaning. Whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The passage of Paul became to me became to me a gate to heaven. See, this doctrine, sola fide by faith alone, was Martin Luther's highway to heaven, you might say. The doctrine of justification, it's central to our faith. Because until you understand that, you can't understand the gospel at all. Luther called it the cornerstone of Christianity. It's the doctrine that answers the questions. How can a man be saved? How can a man be made right before a holy God? That's what it means to be justified. Well, secondly, I want us to ponder this morning the impossibility of justification by human works. Because that's generally where we go in our flesh. Okay, I need to make this right between God and me. What can I do? Why is it that good works can't save us? Well, here's five quick answers to that question. First, good works can't save or can't cancel your sin, but sin ruins your good works. I mean, if I had you come over for breakfast and said, hey, I want to make you an omelet. Meet me at 10 o'clock. Okay, great. And you came over to the house and you walked in the house. And it's, oh, like beyond sulfur, like rotten eggs, like just really, really bad. And you say, what are you doing? Well, I'm making an omelet. Really? What's that I smell? Oh, yes. One of the eggs was bad, but I mixed it with the others. It'd be okay. (laughs) I'm sure after we cook it, it'd just be fine. Would you eat that omelet? I don't think so. I wouldn't eat the omelet. Why? Because the, the, the goodness of all 11 eggs can't cancel the rottenness of the one in the dozen. And see, the same is true when we talk about spiritual things. You can't be good enough to cancel out the putrid effect of your own sin. It's not a scale and you just got to do more, do more, do more. It doesn't work that way. Secondly, good works can't save you because God doesn't grade on a curve. He demands what? Absolute perfection. And if you understand the Bible at all, you know that it only takes one sin to send you to hell. One commentator said this, let's suppose that somehow... You only committed three sins a day. That's it. Most of us probably commit a lot more than that. But just just three sins a day. That would be over 1,000 sins a year. Which would mean that in 70 years, you would have ended up with over 70,000 sins against you on your record. That's just with three a day. Then he says this, let's further suppose that those sins were really speeding tickets. 
If a police officer stopped you for running a red light and discovered that you had 70,000 outstanding speeding tickets on your record, what do you think is going to happen? You're not going to have a good day, right? Instead of get out of the car, hands behind the back, you're thrown in the back of the cruiser, you're off to jail. They'd probably throw away the key. Why do we think God is any different? Because I know we all commit more than three sins a day. (laughs) Our sins are so piled mountain high, we can't even climb over it. It's so wide, we can't scurry around it. It's so deep, we can't tunnel through it. See, our sins are so great, beloved, that even our good works can't even compare. Thirdly, good works can't save you because you can never be good enough long enough. Yeah, we all have a good streak now and then, right? Go a couple hours maybe. But then you end up confessing some sin. You've got to start all over. It's just God's way of keeping us humble. Fourthly, you can be sure, you can never be sure that you've done enough. How do you know when the good works are enough? See, that's why a lot of Religious people, people that are trusting in the religion, they don't really have any assurance of salvation. Because they're just counting on the religious activities to save them. They truly believe that being good will get them to heaven. But being good, doing good, is never good enough. Because you can never do enough to pay for your own sins. There's one fifth thing here. Good works can't save you because if they could, you wouldn't need Jesus at all. Think about that one for a second. If good works could save you, what would you need Jesus for? Why would Jesus have to die on the cross if somehow you could save yourself? See, when we get to heaven, none of us will be able to say, you and me, You and me, Jesus, you know, we we pulled this off. We did it together. I brought the cookies, you died on the cross. You know, it it doesn't work that way. It's either all by Jesus or all by your own efforts. There's nothing in between. There's no gray area there. So please remember that you know what? You can't trust in your own good works. Well, how does this application of alien righteousness, as one commentator put it, apply to us? How are we then saved? It's not by our own good works. Well, how are we going to get to heaven? If it's not by our righteousness, then where are we going to get the righteousness that we need? Well, John Calvin and Martin Luther said that we are saved by the application of an alien righteousness. An alien righteousness. Now, we're not talking UFOs here. We're talking something from another place. That's what he meant. The alien righteousness is a righteousness from another place outside of ourselves. I heard a debate one time online and they were going back and forth, a Christian and a non-Christian. And at one point, the unbelieving 
man said to the Christian debater, he says, you know what? All you're doing is, is you're trusting in going to heaven on the back of a crucified man. That's all you're doing. Kind of mocking him. And Josh McDowell, the one who was debating him, said, Sir, you're entirely correct. (laughs) We believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for the sins of the world. We are indeed going to heaven on the back of a crucified man. You know what? That's the only way we're going to get there, beloved. And if Jesus can't take us to heaven, guess what? We're not going there. So we better have our faith in the right object. And that's what it means to be saved by righteousness from another place. You have to put all of your trust in Christ and none of our trust in anything else. And if Jesus isn't enough to save us, we're, we're in a world of hurt. We're in big trouble because we're pinning everything we've got on his death and resurrection. Why do you think there's been so many people tried to disprove these things? We aren't saved by works, that's true. We're not saved by our own works, but we are saved by the work of Christ. Don't ever forget that. So we come down to this justification by faith alone. We're justified by faith alone. In Romans 3.24, it tells us that this justification by faith is, first of all, it's based on God's grace. It's based on God's grace. We saw that in in Romans 3.24 as we read through that. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's not based on anything in us. But it's also grounded in the blood of Christ. Romans chapter 5 verse 9. Paul writes this. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. It's grounded in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It's not grounded in something we do. Romans 4, 5 tells us that it's not according to our works. It says, into the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So one of the first things you have to do to come to faith in Christ is, you know what? Give up. <laughs> Stop working for it. Sometimes I tell young people who are looking for a spouse, I'll say, you know, they're all friends. Oh, I got to find a husband. I got to find a wife. You know what? Just relax. God has it under control. Don't worry about it. The worst thing you could do is go out there and start, you know, looking under every rock for your soulmate and end up with something you're going to regret the rest of your life. What a better way than to do what God has called you to do and allow him to bring that person into your life. And then you know that it's from the Lord. 
And the last thing here, it's not according to our works, but it's also through faith alone. And we saw that in Romans 3.28. But sometimes people talk about justification and forgiveness as if they're the same thing. They think, okay, well, justification and forgiveness, I guess it's the same thing. Well, they're not. They do happen at the same time. They are inseparable. No one is forgiven who is not also justified theologically, and no one is justified who is also not forgiven. But they're not the same thing. Here's the way I would define it. Forgiveness is the subtraction of that which is sinful from your record. Forgiveness is the subtraction of that which is sinful from your record. Justification is the addition of that which is righteous to your record. Justification is the addition to that which is righteous to your record. If God gave you a report card on your life without Jesus Christ, what do you think it would look like? Right. It would be covered with black and red marks, right? F, 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 F. God gives the whole human race an F. Fail. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. You flunk in every test possible known to mankind. But when you come to Christ, when you come to faith in Christ, when you come to Jesus, what happens to all those F's? They're, they're washed away. The sins are washed away. But now what grade would God give you in Christ? Would he give you a C? Ah, Barely passing here. Hang in there. Would he give you a B? You're doing a little better. Not great, but you're okay. The moment your F is washed away, that's forgiveness. God gives you an A. That's justification. Even though you don't deserve it. You get the grade that Christ earned. Because he finished his course at the top of the class. So you don't squeak by as a Christian with God. I mean, I hear some Christians, you're going to heaven, I hope I get in there by the skin of my teeth. What? What are you saying? And you're a believer? You don't squeak by with God. You make the honor roll. You're the valedictorian of the class. You go to the head of the class. All your sins are forgiven because you're so good? No. (laughs) Left to yourself, you'd still flunk every class you could. You get an A because you are united with Christ, the Bible says. The same righteousness that... Once demanded that you get an F, now demands that you get an A. You're not half justified and half condemned. You're not partially forgiven and partially punished. You're altogether forgiven. Your record is wiped clean. You are declared righteous before a holy God. You're made straight in the eyes of God. That's what justification is all about, beloved. I explain it this way. When I talk to unbelievers and they say, oh, you're, you're in ministry, you're a pastor, you must be religious. And I say, no. And I always say the difference between religion and Christianity is just boils down to two letters in two words. Religion is spelled with two letters, D-O. 
Religion is a list of things that whatever religious organization you're under gives you to do in order to be accepted by God. You got to go to church. You got to give money. You got to give the tithe. You got to keep the commandments. You got to say the rosary. You got to be baptized. You got to pray every day. It's endless. But it's do, 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 do. And when you do those things, you kind of feel good about yourself. You pat yourself on the back, even though you're still going to hell. That's what religion is all about. It's man's attempt to appease a holy God through their works. If you want to go to heaven, you're going to do something and keep on doing it. In the faith I grew up in, that even wasn't good enough. Then you had to rely on people that came after you to pay enough money to the church. Maybe you'll get out of purgatory and end up in heaven one day. Crazy. Religion is due. Christianity is spelled this way. D-O-N-E. What was done. It's not based upon what you do. It's based upon what Christ was done, has done for you on Calvary. See, if you want to go to heaven, beloved, you don't have to do anything. You just have to trust in what Jesus Christ has already done for you. That's the difference. Do versus done. Either you do it or you believe that Jesus Christ has already done it for you. And we all know that we can't do it. What a glorious thing when we're in Christ. The Apostle Paul in Romans, we went through this text. He exalts his justification before God and he says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God. And is also interceding for us. Romans 8. Stop and ask yourself, will your enemies condemn you? No, because God justified me. What about your friends? Will they condemn you? No, because God justifies me. Will demons condemn me? No, because God justified me. Will Satan himself be able to condemn me? No, because God has already justified me. What if Jesus turns on me? Guess what? He won't. He died for you. That's how much he loves you. He gave up his own life. Will your own sins rise up to condemn you? What sins? Your sins are forgiven by the, by the blood of Christ. Your slate is wiped clean. Will my conscience condemn me? And guilt overwhelm me? Maybe on earth, if you allow it to, but not in heaven. Up there, the record is clear forever because we're justified. We're declared righteous before the eyes of God. We're acceptable to God based on the, the work of Christ through his death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Last time I checked, I wasn't around when Jesus died and rose from the dead, but I benefit from it. The only faith through The only way to heaven through faith is in Christ Jesus. And sometimes, you know what? We get confused. We have doubts. We do all that. But you know what? God isn't confused. He's not doubtful. He knows exactly what's going on. We need to be reminded that, you know what? 
our standing before God in Christ is unalterable. Ask yourself this question. What would I do if God did not justify the ungodly? Where would you go? What would you do? The answer is simply that you would be where Martin Luther was, crawling on your knees, praying desperately to God, sinking ever deeper under the crushing load of unforgiven sin. See, that's what the Reformation is all about. That God does indeed justify the ungodly. And he does it, beloved, by faith alone. I want to ask you this morning, where do you stand with God today? Are you straight with him? Or is your life still one big crooked mess? Have you been justified by faith and faith alone? We sang that little chorus earlier. I need thee. When it comes to our salvation, he's the only one we need. Sola fide is the article upon which the church stands or falls. It's also the doctrine upon which we stand or or fall. If we're standing on anything besides Jesus Christ, we're not really standing at all. But if you're you rest your full weight upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll still be standing when everything else around you is falling apart. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the gift of salvation through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we close this service just with a a song, with a video, Lord, and, and as we observe the words of this song, I pray that it would speak to our hearts, that it would encourage us to seek you and you alone. It's only by your grace that we're saved, Father. It's through faith, and that faith is a gift of you. We pray that you would grant us the faith to believe your word, and in believing that we would find rest for our souls. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.